Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Uh, good morning, C4. And good morning again to you watching online, wherever you might be today. We're glad you're with us. Uh, so I'd like to welcome you, uh, not only here this morning on this winter day, but I'd like to welcome you also to the second major series in this ministry year. Today, we as a family are going to begin to hear God and His will and His word through the letter of Philippians. And so if you've got a Bible, a paper copy, or if you follow it uh, online, we'd love you to turn to the book of Philippians this morning. And because this is new for us and under Joanna, as she was leading us last week, uh, every week when you walk into the auditorium at the back doors, there are going to be a series of questions that you're welcome to pick up. You can pick them up after the service. They're going to be obviously connected to what we're going through connect groups, but you also can personally take them, take some notes during the service. Also for you online, they're going to be on the web. So we just want to give that to you uh, this morning. Before I get into the beginning of the book of Philippians, I want to start where we began at the beginning of the year. As we prayed and fasted and struggled and asked Jesus his will for our community this year, we were given one theme, and it was the theme of joy. Joy comes from serving God as we found out through our spiritual gifts that he's given each one of us. That's why we did that spiritual gift series. But joy comes in a different place, which churches rarely talk about. Joy comes when God himself redeems, reuses, and clarifies suffering. Suffering is one of the strongest places where Christian joy can be produced. The truth of that is unnatural and it's unexpected. It's uncomfortable. I say yes to all of that, but suffering is one of the hard roads to joy. It is actually one of the places where heaven is seen strongest in the world, in a family, in a connect group, and also your own life. That is why we've decided and prayed and decided to go through the book of Philippians where joy and suffering are intermingled in a way that makes no sense to the world but makes very, very great sense to us. It's actually where light is seen in darkness. I love what D.L. Moody preached so long ago when he said, joy flows right on through trouble. Joy flows right on through the dark. Joy flows in the night as well as in the day. Joy flows through persecution and all opposition. And so, no matter the source of your suffering, historic or present this morning, whether it's your own sin, like we saw in the video, or it's the sin of others that have affected you, or it's dealing with evil, the demonic, or it's just living in a fallen world, or even in sometimes, if it's God's discipline, if every one of us at the beginning of this series are open to God again, to trust Him, in time, each one of those places can become an environment for joy. If a C.S. Lewis penned so long ago that joy is the serious business of heaven, then heaven is serious about joy in every part of your life this morning. Good, great, bad, and even terrible. Now, Some of you are saying, could you just stop for a moment and remind me again what joy is? Here's how one person wrote it. It's the happy state in results from knowing God and serving God. Words like joy and rejoice are found throughout the Bible. It's how we translate it into English. The word joy is used over 150 times in the Bible. If you add the word joyous, it well goes beyond 200. And then if you use the word rejoice, the verb of joy, there's another 200 plus references in the Bible. There is 400 plus references in Holy Scripture to joy. It is commanded of us. It's promised to us. So then the question we need to ask is this. What does our life look like right now? Look around. Do you see joy in our culture? 
Do you see joy in your family? Do you see joy in your life? Do you see joy in this church? The answer, if you're honest, is going to be mixed at best. Why? Because there is so much that steals joy and even grieves God's given joy in your life if you're a Christian. Let me give you four of them. Worry, stress, fear, and darkness. Worry, stress, fear, and darkness. Chuck Swindoll called the first three joy killers. Worry is that you are wondering if something may or may not occur. You don't know if it's going to happen. You think it might, but it might not, and you sit there and you shut down. Stress is strain over a situation you cannot control. You want to control it. It's gone beyond worry, but you can't. Fear is that uneasiness over possible danger or evil or pain. But darkness is fear realized. It's the actual touching of danger, evil, or pain into your life. So what are we called to do as Christians? There seems to be a huge chasm between the promise and command of joy and then everyday life where the giants of worry, stress, fear, and darkness seem to loom very large, let alone sin, death, and the demonic. Well, the answer is where you start. If you choose to start dealing with anything or any of that list from anyone but Jesus, joy will be removed from you. Some of you going, thanks, John. Great churchy answer. Really helpful. Jesus. It's like, yeah, okay. But the truth is, that is truth. Christian joy is supernatural. Christian joy is connected to Jesus himself. And here's something we all need to get, especially many of us who've done church for too long. It's a gift. So many of us have grown up in church and thought we needed to work really hard and then we'll get joy. That's not the type of church we want to deal with anymore. That's not the type of teaching we need. Joy is a gift. It's never earned. That's right. Jesus said that in this world, there would be many troubles. He promised us that there would be worry and stress, that there would be fear, that there would be darkness. And yet he also said that we would have unexplainable, contagious, outrageous, infectious, unnatural joy. But this can only happen when we begin to systematically walk with, under, and alongside one person, Jesus. What did Jesus promise in the great relationship passage in the whole Bible in John 15? Jesus said, if you've truly met me, interesting, and if you obey me, side note, then he says this word in verse 11, then these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The same joy that God himself, Jesus is the son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. And he comes along and says to average broken people like us that the joy that the Trinity itself experiences could be our experience and that we are, what's the last word? Say it loud. Full. Does that describe our church? Full of joy? Or does worry and stress and darkness and fear describe much of us? See, here's what I've begin to, begun to learn. We are not called to live under our circumstances, but we are not called to live above our circumstances. How many times have I been in churches or in seminars and pastors and leaders get up and say, well, Jesus is in your life and he's so strong and he's done so much work, so you're called to live above. No, you're not. We as Christians are commanded not to live above our circumstances, nor are we called to live under them. We are called to walk in them. 
But we are called to walk in them empowered by the Spirit of Jesus who gives us joy. We are called not to live under or be in bondage to the world, but nor are we called to begin to set people up for failure and say, well, now you're a Christian. You get to avoid all this stuff. No, you don't. Jesus promised us there would be many worries in this world. We are called to walk right into fear, worry, stress, and darkness, but we are called to do it with Jesus himself. Escapism is not allowed in the church any longer. A lot of people want to preach it. It's not in Scripture. That is why Paul himself could not only conceptually write about joy, but actually experience joy, real, powerful, life-changing, life-altering joy. Paul was a guy just like us, a person who struggled and wondered and went through life. And actually, if you're honest, his life is much more difficult than most of us gathering here today. Listen to what he went through after he became a Christian. He meets Jesus in a profound way. He begins to tell other people about Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he begins to describe his experiences after he's met the Savior. He says, I've worked much harder, been jailed more often, beat up more times than I can count. I've been at death's door time and time again. I've been flogged five times with the Jews, 39 lashes. Now just stop and hear that. Has anyone in here been beaten 39? Like, think about this. Legally, I've been beaten by the Romans with rods three times, pummeled with rocks runt, so he's been stoned, thought he was dead. I've been shipwrecked three times, immersed in open sea for a day and a night. I've had hard traveling year in and year out. I've had to forge rivers, fend off robbers, struggle with friends, and struggle with foes. I've been at risk in the city, at risk in the country, endangered by desert sun, sea storm, betrayed by those I thought were my brothers. I've known drudgery and hard labor and many a long and lonely night without sleep, missed many meals, blasted by cold, naked and and, and to the weather and that's not half of it when you throw in the daily pressures and anxieties of all the churches when someone gets to the end of the rope I feel desperation in my bones when someone is duped into sin an angry fire burns in my gut come on meet Jesus it's great (laughs) like think about it this guy at this moment writing this should be burnt out, angry, jaded, tired, done, hating those he's supposed to love, neurotic, a power-driven shell of a church leader. But he's not. He's marked by and has this weird, deep joy. And interestingly enough, he chooses to express this joy in the most detailed, written way in a most unexpected place. Paul, when he's writing Philippians, is in jail under house arrest in Rome two years before he's about to be, well, murdered. The church he's writing to was founded 10 years earlier in in 50 AD. You can read about that story in Acts 16. That's part of the follow-up we were talking about in the connect groups. It's been 10 years now. He's been through all that suffering. He's now in jail. The church has grown. And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he now is commanded to write this letter about joy. Now he thanks them for their gifts and urges them to keep going. And the truth is, side note, many of us like Philippians for one reason. It's one of Paul's few friendship letters. He's not really angry about false teaching or persuasion. You know, that you're drunk at communion. Stop sleeping with your mother-in-law. What are you people doing? Like, this one is just like, oh, hugs all around. And we go, oh, Paul, finally I can hug you. Ooh, okay. So we love Philippians because it's so friendship-based. Now, the book only has 104 verses, 
And there are grand themes in it. The centrality of Jesus, the power of the gospel, the call for us to be a community, faithfulness and suffering. But underneath all of this, while he's writing this chain to Roman soldiers in jail, there's a grand theme of joy. It acts like the foundation, the infrastructure, the bookends, the the bedrock. It's like an underground river that seeps in and through the whole letter. And joy keeps bubbling up time and time again. Joy is mentioned in every single chapter in the book of Philippians. So let's begin to ask the question as we hear God's word. Is it possible that God could actually show up and take past suffering or present suffering and produce in me heaven-given joy. We believe it in our heads. Most of us in our hearts don't think it's going to happen. But I'm here to tell you, Scripture says the answer is joy is coming. Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Now notice where Paul starts this morning. Very important. He starts with community and identity. Servants of Christ Jesus. Servants is translated slaves. There's no prima donnas here, no power-hungry leaders. They are simply slaves. They get it, they're great with it, and they love being a slave to Jesus. They're owned, fully dependent, empowered by, and accountable to Christ Jesus. Everything is in, of, for, under, and alongside Jesus Christ. They would say, I am not a slave to the Roman Empire. I am not owned by Nero of the day. I am not a slave to myself, to religion, to sex, to money, to power, or fame. I am a slave to the one who has names above all other names, and we know one thing. Joy is found in Jesus only. I love being owned by him. Is that you? That's where they start. And then they turn around quickly, and they give that affirmed identity that they own to the people they're writing to. The church, all of them, leaders and followers, are called saints. If you are a Christian here this morning or watching or listening online, you are a saint. You do not need a pope to tell you you are one. You are one. Every Christian on earth is a saint. Saint means holy one, and you're holy in two ways. At this moment, before the living God of heaven and earth, the Father sees you perfectly. You're without sin. I'm without sin right now because of the work of Jesus. But also, you are set apart, you are consecrated for the purposes of God's service. Listen closely. To be an authentic Christian is to be a saint. And to be a saint, you have to be a slave. Because the slavery piece tells you you're consecrated. You are not about your will anymore. You're about His. Jesus, they understood, was responsible for them and us becoming the people of God. And under the crucified and risen one, he creates the present sphere for our new existence called sainthood. Then he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, undeserved love and mercy and relationship and peace. There is no hostility between us and God anymore. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Paul encourages these Christians by telling them he's prayed for them. He thanks God for them again and again. And unlike other church situations, there's no regrets here. There's no brokenness in relationships, no ill feelings. There was no unresolved conflicts. He values them not just because of what they've done, but just for who they are. He says, in all my prayers for all of you, verse 4, I always pray, here it is, with joy, because of my partnership in the gospel from from the first day until now. He makes the point to pray on their behalf on a a regular basis, and it's not duty or boring. It's joy-filled, and this is where we need to stop and remind ourselves. Please hear this. 
As one scholar wrote, joy lies at the heart of the Christian experience, period. Let me say that again. Joy lies at the heart of the Christian experience. It's the heart of the gospel. It is one of the fruit of the Spirit, which is truly found in the Christian life. It serves, ready, as primary evidence that the Spirit of God's in you. Precisely because of this, joy transcends any present circumstance because it's based on the presence of the Spirit, not based on what we do. See, he has joy because of the Spirit of God. He has joy because of the gospel. He has joy because of them. And he is so excited because they are partnering with him in the most important task in human history. Everyday, normal people joining God in his work to restore people back to God in relationship. He says, I have joy because of the partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, I found out this week that the word partnership is actually the same word we get our word church from. Isn't that interesting? Just want to stop. Think about that. The word partnership in Greek is where we get our word ecclesia, like the gathering, the community. It's very similar. And so understand that one of the main things that happens is when you meet Jesus, partnership is what you're, you are going to start doing, loving, joy-filled, gift-based service, because that's intrinsic into what we are. He said, you're partnering with me from the first day you met Jesus until now. You are working this out. And not only that, I'm so excited because you as a small church are telling many other people the good news about Jesus. You are giving out one word, the gospel. Now, as we go through the book of Philippians, if you're a highlighter person, you know who you are, whether electronic or physical, circle, highlight, cut and paste, the word the gospel. It is mentioned seven times in this letter. The gospel is the best news ever given. It is a message like no other. Unlike every speech and every book, every conversation that's ever been uttered or texted, twittered, written down, sent, written, this message is heaven sent. Every time the gospel is spoken, said, and shared, and embraced, (coughs) Christmas happens again and again. Angels sing, darkness flees, sin gets exposed, death gets defeated. Humans are given the chance for forgiveness, hope, peace between creator and created. The message has the literal, actual, present power of God to bring salvation. Salvation means we were saved, we are being saved, we will be saved from God's wrath and sin in the world and the demonic and death when Jesus comes back. Tell me again one message, one religious idea, one political view, one clinical diagnosis. Point to me one job, one thing you can buy or own. Point to me anything that can bring you freedom from stress, worry, fear, darkness, the kingdom of darkness, death, and sin. The answer is nothing except the gospel. That's why Paul wrote, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it has the power of God for salvation for whoever believes, first Jews and then non-Jews. God does not ask us to behave. He asks us to to believe. After we believe, then we behave out of a right relationship. The gospel is believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Salvation comes, listen, through giving up on our own goodness our works, our knowledge, our wisdom, and trusting only in the finished work of Jesus. And Paul says, because you have trusted, not in yourself or in religion or in anything else you could bring to the table, but you have embraced the gospel in Jesus, then he says this, now I can affirm your future. Being confident of this, verse 6, he that has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is a good amen moment. 
That was weak. Do I need to go to the embassy to get some Pentecostals over here? Seriously, this is a good amen moment. Thank you, online people. We're okay. Yeah. This is, oh my goodness. Paul says that there is another coming. There is a second advent. Christmas is coming again, but very differently. And everything that Jesus has started, he is going to fulfill. Comfort and joy are the bookends of your life if you're a Christian. Beginning and complete. Start and finish. This is the grand truth of election. The strong power of salvation. The call which will always be fulfilled. Salvation, listen, is never lost when God starts it. And guess what the Bible teaches us? He always starts it. Every Christian salvation is secure and eternal because he is the one that will bring what he started to completion. Salvation is God's work, not your work. It's us resting in God's sovereign call. He calls us, he meets us, he walks with us, he sustains us, and he's going to be with us forever. It was Chuck Swindoll that wrote, you want a fresh burst of encouragement? You have a good friend who used to walk close to Jesus and isn't anymore? Here's some fresh hope. Rest in the confidence that God has neither lost interest or lost control. The Lord has not folded his arms and is looking the other way. The person you're concerned about may even be your son or your daughter. Find encouragement in this firm confidence. The one that began a good work in your boy or your little lost girl, he is going to bring it to completion. He will finish the task. He says, I repeat, the firm confidence in God's finished work will give you your joy back. Some of us are walking and our joy has been ripped out of our Christian life because we suddenly started because of worry, stress, anxiety, fear, and darkness in the people we love. We thought we had to become their Messiah. And we had to take on all the decisions they've made and we needed to make sure, no, 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 you're not God. He's God. He's called them. He's coming for them. Let them run. A big fish is coming for them and he's going to get them. Every one of them. It's true. But if you take on the burden of salvation for your children or the burden of salvation for your friends, You will lose all your Christian joy. Why? Because all you do is you're looking at their defeat and you're not looking at the one who calls. Paul says, lift your eyes up to the one who can deal with this. Who do you think you are? You're only flesh and blood. You were never called to have the burden like that. In jail, in suffering, he says, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. Whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And then overwhelmed almost by the Spirit of God, then he bursts out in this amazing prayer. And this is my prayer, he says in verse 9, that your love may bound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. See, Paul understands something, that without a supernatural intervention, the local church, the missionary outpost of the world, this new community, the only true hope of the world, will always turn on itself. And given to all the acts we got saved from. Lust, gossip, jealousy, power plays, fear. And the list goes on and on. And it will lose, in, in its huge wake, we'll lose uh, all sorts of broken people. And he calls on heaven for continued love to be shared and experienced. And interesting, in Greek, he does not pray that Christians would have sexual love for each other, nor friendship love. He actually asks for God's own love for each other. 
he begins to pray understanding that without Christian love, the church dies. I love what D.A. Carson wrote when he said, Christian love, deep, mature, unqualified is a rare commodity. When it's displayed, it speaks volumes to a society that gorges itself in self-interest, lust, and mutual admiration packs. Well, it knows very little of love. And then he says, show me a church where the worship department isn't known as the war department. Show me a church where people don't divide or do, do divide over evangelistic strategies or over the color of the carpet. And I'll show you a church that has not been praying for love for a very long time. Paul understands that joy will be robbed if there is not love, and he understands that love is a heaven-sent thing, and so he begins, just as a fellow journeyer, to cry out that a church just like us would have real, heaven-sent love for each other so we would not lose our joy. And then he keeps praying, and he says, I want you to have knowledge and depth of insight, and he's good at what he does. Because he understands that if we don't have knowledge theology, right understanding. And if we don't have depth of insight, which is morals, living as God has commanded us in an act of worship, love will always be diluted. Again, I love what one person said. When love floods indiscriminately, we love everything, even wrong things. Paul said it well. It is knowledge and discernment that keep love within its right banks. If you want to see a church continually transformed, if you want to see your life transformed, if you want to see your family transformed, if you want to see deep joy, understand this. You need to pray for love and good theology and good living. Why? Because those three things actually produce what we're looking for. He keeps praying and says that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so you'll be able to discern what's best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. To discern what is best, he says, I want you to know what is excellent, important, and eternal. Your joy is stolen so much of the time in church because you end up giving your life to things and fighting over things and worrying about things that aren't going to last. What does God want to do? What does God care about? What's on heaven's agenda? What truth? What is God always doing and what does God want to do right now? He says, I I want you to be pure and blameless. I want you to be marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And don't miss this this morning, please. Do you notice how he ties this to the coming of Jesus? There's an old doctrine rarely preached about. It's in our doctrine statement. It's called immediacy, expectancy, where we are called to live like Jesus could come back today. You're eating Swiss chalet and it's done. He comes. The question is, do you, do I live our life in such a way that if Jesus returned on this Sunday, we'd be okay with it? Paul understood that that immediacy, living with the expectancy of his always coming return, pushes us to know him, to love others, and to live a right life because we know we're going to have to face him and give an account. Do you even live your life that way? He prays that we would. And he ends it, of course, to the glory and praise of God. So the question is, as we begin this series together, what do we take away? What is God saying to you at this very moment? What is God saying to us at C4 Church? Well, a few thoughts, and then I'll be done. First thing, for us to have joy, real joy, lasting joy, for this book to be understood, for truth to take root, for joy to transcend the lost dreams many of you have, 
for joy to take root back in some of you who have been Christians a long time, for joy to be experienced for the first time for others, for joy to be understood and experienced in all the right ways, you need to start in all the right places. So interestingly, this is where Paul starts. Do not miss this, please, this morning. Paul starts with your identity. Notice what he did. Catch this. Write these notes down. Paul starts by saying this. I and Timothy, we are slaves. You want Christian joy? Stop fighting Jesus about your slavery. Jesus is your, he's your owner. He's your master. We all know this, whether we want to admit it or not, because we are such, well, prideful beings. We are always going to be owned by something. Ourselves, our history, our regrets, our lost dreams, our aspirations, sex, money, power. You fill in the blank. Religion, service, it goes on and on. But here's one thing. Jesus is the only one in history who can come and say, but my burden is what? Light. Slavery is the beginning point of joy. And when we met Jesus, we didn't just say, Jesus, you can be my savior. We also called him what? Say it loud. Lord. Slavery brings joy because he knows what he's doing and we don't. And I want to be owned by someone who is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Why? Because I'm not those things, but he is. Joy starts when we know that we are slaves and we take slavery seriously and we embrace it. But also joy comes when we start calling ourselves and living as saints. At this moment, you are a child of God. At this moment, you are positionally holy. At this moment, you are loved. And you will always be loved. I don't care what the world says to you. I don't care what your family says to you. I don't care what the devil says to you. Here's the truth. You're a saint because he called you. He's always going to love you. He's never going to forsake you, period. That is where you need to start and live. That's how you need to live in work and in family and at home, whether you're in a highly abusive environment or a great environment. You are a slave to Christ. You are a saint according to God. And here's the other thing. Identity is rooted in our free salvation. None of us ever had to earn God's love. So don't start trying to earn it after you meet meet him. He loves you. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant it. We have nothing to do with getting into heaven. We have nothing to do of meeting Jesus. He comes for us. He completes it. What he starts, he's going to finish. Are we responsible to live in that new marriage? Yes. But don't buy into the lie where you start saying, well, maybe God you know, is upstairs and his arms are folded and he doesn't like me today. He does. And he always will because he forgives 70 times 7 and way more than that. Root your identity in your slavery and your sainthood and in the gospel you embraced, and you will find joy. Why? Because you will not spend your life trying to prove yourself to God and prove yourself to others. Do I need to say that again? You will not spend your life proving yourself to God and others. That's done. There's joy there. Here's the second thing. Joy, start in the right place, is rooted in sovereignty. As one person wrote, joy is a choice. It's a matter of attitude that stems from your confidence in God, that he's at work, that he's in full control, and he's in the midst of everything that's happening to you right now, everything that has happened, will happen, or will come. Either we fix our minds and determine, he writes, to laugh again, or we will wail and whine our way through life complaining we never got the fair shake we deserved. 
We are the ones who consciously determine which way we shall go. Confidence brings joy when we fix our attention on things we're thankful for. Confidence brings joy when we let God be God. And confidence brings joy when we keep our love in proper limits. One of the great things we all struggle with is many of us in this church love Jesus. We just don't trust him. We love him, but we don't trust him. Thank you for saving you, but where are you in my life? I don't trust you. Sovereignty gives you back joy because you don't have to take the mantle of being God anymore. Root your identity in what Scripture says about you. Every day, at every moment, joy will be produced. Root yourself in God's sovereignty. Joy will be produced. And here's the last thing. Joy comes perpetually when we start seeing fresh moves of God among us when we cry out that he'll move. Listen again, lastly, as I come to an end, to his prayer. And this is my prayer, he writes, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you'll be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now that's a very wordy prayer for some of us, but let me break it down very simply. Actually, this is really a prayer for revival. Look at it. Revival is when a local church is so transformed because those things that have eternal value take over. Revival is always marked by an overwhelming sense of Christ's presence in the local church. Revival is marked when those things that are holy and awesome and beautiful become normative to us. This is a prayer that Jesus would come among a church and produce joy. I love one person who wrote, if Jesus was to make himself physically present in our church Sunday after Sunday, what do you think will happen? Well, he says this is what would happen. And this is the outworking of Paul's prayer. There would be increased and renewed participation in musical worship. Don't you think? If Jesus was right here, do you think you'd be, whoop, whoop, right? Even the non-haired raisers, whoop, right? If he was here, do you think we'd be singing different? We would be. There'd be an outcrease, an outpouring of God's love among each other. There'd be a heightened awareness of, of his holiness, and we'd start confessing and repenting. And there would be restitution between many of us who just don't like each other in this church. There would be an eagerness to serve because he's here. We would have stronger preaching. We'd have deeper interest in the word of God. There would be growing boldness in prayer. Can you imagine walking in the front? Jesus, I'd just like to talk to you. Here's my prayer. Whoa, boldness. Not only boldness, there would be a remarkable and a remarkable power and ease. And we'd begin to start talking about all sorts of people, to all sorts of people about Jesus. You want to meet Jesus? Seriously, he's at the front of C4. Come with me. You laugh, but he is here. (laughs) And here's the other thing that would happen. There'd be all-out spiritual warfare. We'd be gearing up for war. Deliverances would be normal. People would be setting free, left, right, and center. And there would be an unusual well-being or wholeness in our church. You say, why do you bring that up? I'll tell you why. Because Paul's prayer that he starts while he's sitting in jail, writing to another church, is really praying that all this would happen. Love, theology, knowledge, insight, blamelessness, the gospel, all these things are rooted in what we're praying for. This is the type of church I would like to be part of. What about you? So how about we start this way? How about we gather as a community, let's be honest about our deficit of joy for many of us, And let's pray this prayer together and see what Jesus does. Because I will tell you this. Since September, we've started seeing inklings 
of some of us. And I'm very intrigued to see what Jesus is going to do in this year. So, Dan, why don't you come up? Why don't you get in a posture of prayer wherever you are online? Plane, train, automobile, you can get ready. Uh, Wherever you are, you can get in a posture of prayer. You can kneel, you can cover your face, you can stand, you can open your arms, however you'd like to pray. And let's, let's pray some stuff this morning. Uh, Jesus, hear our prayer this morning as we begin this whole series on joy, the hard road to suffering, uh, and, and, and the connection between, inter, the intermingling between joy and suffering. Here's like what we'd like to pray. Number one, I pray for myself and my family here and those connecting with us this morning virtually that you would begin to tell us if we've not rooted our identity in what you say over us in Scripture. So just, I pray this right now, that over the next eight or ten weeks, you'd begin to specifically tell people how they view themselves and how they act. And I just pray there'd be a change. I pray for many others, including myself, that we would get okay with you being sovereign. Some of us really struggle with trusting you, but we want to re-say right now, give us joy in the midst of everything we're going through. And we do, we do believe you're in control. We do believe you're in control. You are God. But also, Lord, we pray this prayer together. And this is our prayer for C4 Church. We pray that our love would abound more and more. We pray for more knowledge. We pray for more depth of insight. We pray that we will be able to discern what is best. And, me, and, and deeper than that, that you would just move us to that place that we'd be pure and blameless. Like, give us a purity that's not natural. Give us a blamelessness that's not natural. Fill us with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ only to the glory and praise of God. Begin to work out joy in our church. Help us to root ourselves where you say we are. Help us to submit. And we pray because we know that this is heaven sent, that love would be established deeper in a way it has not, that joy would be experienced, and that at the end of this series, we don't just move on, but people can actually say, in my suffering, I have joy again because I'm connected to Jesus and he's doing something in me that could never be counseled, invented, thought through, or bought. So we just ask this now uh, in the name of Jesus. We ask this personally and communally. Uh, Amen. So why don't we stand as uh, Dan and the team get ready to lead us here. And one of the best ways, of course, to, to end a message on joy and suffering is communion. <laughs> if there's one great act in human history that bring and intermingle joy and suffering in the most profound way, it's the cross. Christians around the world today, as we say, have gathered by the millions. Have you thought about that today? By the millions and have celebrated Jesus' death and resurrection. Scripture says that if you are a Christian, you are welcome to this table. If you've embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord genuinely, then you're welcome. Jesus said just before he was murdered, he took bread and broke it and said, Friends, I'm going to die, and my body's going to be broken. A lot of suffering. He took a, one of the Passover cups of wine and says, My blood's going to be spilled. But then he said, A new covenant I'm making, that if you embrace me and the work I'm about to do, we're going to have a relationship that humanity has never seen before because I'm going to clear the way back to the Father. And so communion is a time, according to Scripture, that we come and we thank God for his death and resurrection. We thank uh, Jesus himself for forgiveness. We are reminded that one day we're going to eat with him face to face. And it's also a place where we take time to repent. Maybe some of you need to come and say, you know what? I have not been joy-filled. 
or, or Lord, I've taken on the burden of others. You're the one who's called them and needs to bring them home. I can just point them, so relieve me of that. Whatever you need to do. Paul is very clear in Corinthians that if you uh, are struggling with sin, repent. If you are a Christian on the run and you refuse to come back to your master at this moment, don't take this. And if you're not a Christian yet, that's fine. Just observe this because you have not embraced the one it represents. But for all of us who are struggling, not doing well or doing great, we welcome you to the table to come and take this. And also we remind you when we do come forward communion that we do our care fund every time for those who don't have enough food. Uh, all that stuff we do, so much of the social justice stuff and counseling and so many people are in desperation. We give above and beyond our normal tithes at this. So we'd ask, offer, uh, ask you to come and give generously above and beyond so we can keep dealing with the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of people in Jesus' name. So as teams come up to prepare, let me pray over the elements and then we'll respond. Jesus, uh, we pray that you'd meet us at these tables. Though they are only symbols, we know you're here. And so we pray, however you want to work out stuff today, you'd come and meet us and give us joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.carotherscreek.ca.